Good morning. So good to be together in the study of God's Word today. Take your Bibles. You know we've been in the study of Luke, so Luke 14 is where we are continuing this morning in this study of Jesus' journey down to Jerusalem on His way to becoming the sacrifice for our sin. I was thinking about my conversion and how it is that the Lord humbles an individual that He wants to draw to Himself. And it must happen. There must be a humbling because it is the human heart in, it, in its pride and in its self-righteousness that keeps us from the truth of the gospel. And I was a religious hypocrite. I, I certainly wasn't the best version of what I attached myself to religiously. But nonetheless, I would have told you I was a Christian and I played the game and I was in and out of circles where I, I could pretend enough to satisfy whoever was around me. And, and those that knew different, like my own family, they, they would have known uh, that things weren't right and prayed for me in that regard. But it was gracious of the Lord to, to make sure that whatever I was doing in life, it never really satisfied. Whatever religious connections I might have had, whatever claims I made, they never ultimately satisfied the human heart. They never resulted in any power over sin. I might have pretended, but the very reason you have to pretend is because there's no substance. That is what it means to pretend. Had there been substance, it wouldn't have been an act. It wouldn't have been a pretense. I could have actually been living for the Lord, but I wasn't. And it is kind of God, it is the grace of God that leaves you in a state of emptiness so that the message can be sent to you over and over again that nothing you do will ever be enough, will ever satisfy. There's just this constant drudgery ultimately in any kind of religious pretense. And what God often does, though He is not obligated to do it, what He often does is He, he lets you feel the weight of the emptiness of religious pretense. He lets you come to the place where you see where your pride does nothing. It ultimately ends in misery and self-focus, self-exaltation. And if, if He's gracious, He'll open your eyes to that. If He wants to leave you in your sin, which is His just right, uh, your blindness will, will never see it. Your blindness will only grow worse and worse because of your pride. It's amazing to me then that as Jesus is on His way to His death, He's gracious on behalf of His Father and the work His Father is doing, and on the way to the work that He's ultimately going to do for sinners, He has these moments where He is opening the eyes of individuals, or to some degree showing them where their pride has led them, unveiling, if you, were, if you will, the blindness that is there, uncovering it so that they can see the problem. You remember we, we left last week's study with Jesus still at this dinner gathering in Luke 14, and we've been looking at the way that Jesus at this event points out the manifestations of pride. Luke, of course, in recording the event, gives us our very first look at how pride manifests itself, and then Jesus begins to speak at the event and point out the ways that these religious hypocrites manifest pride rather than humility, and it keeps them from seeing Him for who He is keeps them from the gospel. It blinds them to it. And it is a blindness so hard that unless the Lord in His sovereign grace, like we just sang, opens and gives you life, there will be no hope. But what a kindness Jesus offers to them as He begins to 
expose their problem. Now, as I said, Luke records the story and gives us the very first manifestation of pride out of the gate. If you've been with us, you know that that first one was that pride hates the light. Pride hates righteousness. Any manifestation of real substantive holiness, pride hates that. And that's exactly what you see at this event. It, it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, verse 1, it was on the Sabbath, they were eating bread, and they were watching him closely. This was not an invitation out of respect. They wanted to catch him in something so that they could take him down to the Sanhedrin and under the, the power of and might of the, the governing authorities in Israel, they could turn him over to Rome and deal with him finally, once and for all. They hated his light. They hated his works. They hated the kindness that he showed. They hated the way he spoke to them and, and utterly undid all of their arguments. They couldn't reason in front of the people with Jesus because he, he assailed all of their complaints, answered all their dilemmas, and put them on their heels, which never happened as they condescended to the crowds. They hated the fact that he was holy. They couldn't pin any sin on him. They hated the fact that he had power from on high. They denied where it came from in order to deny him. We saw also then the, the second manifestation of pride is that they, in doing so, set their own trap. Verse 2, there in front of him was a man suffering from a disease. They had brought a guy into a banquet you never bring these guys into. They never would. Illness was a defilement, and they felt most surely was attached to a curse. They brought the guy in because they knew Jesus would have his sympathies played upon and would heal him, or he'd perform some sort of miraculous moment, and then they could accuse Jesus of doing this thing on the Sabbath and therefore violating the law. And if they could get him to do that, they could prove he wasn't the Messiah. But they'd set their own trap, you remember. This is how pride always is. You, you think you can argue with the truth and, yet, and that your life unravels. I've had people tell me, that they don't believe what the Bible says, and I've warned them over and over again, the life you're living can only lead to X, Y, Z. No, it won't. I'm, I'll, be, I'll be the one who makes it. You, you'll see. And just a short time later, all that unraveling happens. Why? Because pride denies the reality of the way you live. Pride denies where the human heart will lead. Pride is blind to it, resistant to it, won't admit it, while you're traveling toward the very thing you're denying. And that was them. They put this diseased man in front of Jesus. He healed him, and, and it set their own trap because he did display the power of the Messiah. They just weren't willing to acknowledge it. They just wanted to pick on the fact that he did it on the Sabbath. So again, they were twisted. Their pride had caused them to have craftiness, which God caught them in and pulled the rug out from underneath them, proving he's the Messiah by his very power. Furthermore, we saw that Jesus points out they're selective with the Scripture. Verse 5, which one of you will have a son nor an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Are you, I mean, you men know the Sabbath doesn't forbid taking care of the safety of family members and economic security if you're destitute. The Sabbath doesn't forbid that, and, and you do that all day long. Why are you holding a standard over me while I'm displaying compassion on this man with the disease, the very thing you would do for a family member or your economics, and yet you're going to act like I've violated some rule. You're, you're in hypocrisy, and their pride is exposed in being selective with the Scriptures. People do that all the time, don't they? They'll, they'll 
they'll talk to you about uh, God, but they won't go to the Scriptures and study them with you. And you'll say, well, let's study this passage. And you'll say, no, I don't want to do that. And then they'll turn around and quote Matthew 7, 1 to you. Don't judge, lest you be judged. I always find that fascinating. Well, you don't want to study the Scriptures with me, but you're quoting the Scriptures to me. That's exciting. Let's do this. They're doing the same thing. Their pride is selective in the use of Scriptures to dodge the implications of other passages. And we saw how pride had done that to these men. And then we notice, number four, that pride seeks the praises of men, verse 8. You remember Jesus had said, look, when you're invited, you don't take the places of honor. When you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't take the places of honor. Don't do that. Why was Jesus saying it? Because he noticed it. Verse 7 says, when they came in, you remember the, the host sits here and the two honored guests by his side, and in descending order, the distinguished invitees down the line. And they came in, they weren't placed in those seats, the host wasn't pointing to those seats, no one had sat down, and they took those seats. I'm going to clearly be the honored guest. I surely, in the room as I survey it, am the most important person here. Clearly, the host would certainly sit me next to him. This was their attitude, always seeking the praises of men. Jesus says, don't promote yourself. Remember that you're unworthy. It's the host that sets the seeds. And Jesus is now ramping it up to the spiritual analogy. That it is God who's sovereign over spiritual positions, not you. You don't come in and say, I bring myself. I offer myself. You must accept me, and I'll get into the kingdom that way. Jesus is beginning to turn this to the eternal spiritual analogy of his kingdom. No, it's God who sets the seating chart of his kingdom, and it comes through him, not you. His righteousness, not your righteousness. Don't promote yourself. So what are you supposed to do? Jesus says you go to the end. You go to the lowest seat. Come humbly. Come as someone who says, I have no privilege. I bring no righteousness. I am nothing. You are everything. If, the, if my sin has a remedy, it, it's got to come from you. I can't bring it, and so I embrace it. In, in, in any way, whatever way you want, God, that's how I come, because you're the sovereign one. You choose the seating chart in the kingdom. Jesus says, that's how you come. But the pride wouldn't allow him to do that, and so he, he offers the sort of stinging guarantee in verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. When you come to God and you humble yourself, and notice the reflexive verbal idea there, you humble yourself. You're involved in the humbling. You bring yourself under God's Word. You bring yourself under the principles of truth. You come to God and you throw off all of your sense of yourself and your greatness. You throw it off. Confess it. Forsake it. Run from it. Flee from it. Own the fact that you're nothing before God. Own it. You come in that way, Jesus says that kind of individual will make it to the exalted place of the kingdom. And so he's again drilled down one step deeper. But now we come to a fifth manifestation of pride, and he illustrates it in verses 12 to 14. We'll call it this, pride gives with ulterior motives. Pride gives with ulterior motives. Verse 12, and he also went on to say to the one who had invited him, when you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or 
your rich neighbors, otherwise they may also invite you in return, and that will be your repayment. But when you give a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, and you'll be blessed since they don't have the means to repay you. You will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Now, you get the picture. He's at the dinner. He's observing people taking the chief seats, and he begins to address the crowd once they've sat down and says to them, you're doing it all backwards. You're, you're taking the disposition of someone entitled. And I'm telling you, don't take the disposition of someone entitled. Demonstrate that you're really not all about your own appearance and your own righteousness. You're really all about the host and his sovereign purposes. That's what you're about. Having said that now, he turns to the host himself. And he says, I noticed the way you've invited the guests here. And so when you give something like this, don't invite the ones that you've invited, friends, brothers, relatives, or rich neighbors. What is Jesus' point here, and how can we sort of drill down and draw out the implications? Well, first of all, the social ethic of a proud person is always one of doing things not just to appear better than others, but actually to gain an advantage from others. People who live in patterns of pride that they never deal with are not only those who put up a pretense to hide the real motive, but they also love to have give and take, reciprocity. It's a kind of giving that says, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. They want to gain an advantage from the people that, that they appear to be friends with or serving. Now, you recall that the religious leaders of Israel love to be viewed as super hospitable. Oh, we open our lives up to anyone. They love to be sitting around at very distinguished luncheons and dinners as invited guests. And they knew that if they were invited and were there, they would be considered above the common people. Yeah, we're, we're the important ones. We have these important meals because we are above the commoners. They love to be honored as spiritually elite. You can't reach the spiritual level we have reached. We've reached it because in and of ourselves, we've come to the place where we are righteous. You, however, must follow our model because you're not going to reach the level we've reached. This is, what, this is what they thought of themselves. We keep the law. We are spiritually elite. You can only hope to get close to us. They loved to be viewed as highly educated and highly intelligent. They had a pride about their intellect. They love to be viewed as more righteous than other people and therefore worthy of God's eye. The way we live, God recognizes us. God takes notice. They love to be viewed and honored as those who faithfully live by the highest moral ethics and therefore they're the models of other people. The irony was thick. They set themselves up as models, but they also, in doing so, tell everyone you can't reach us. You got to follow our example and only hope to reach our level but you can never do it. This was their pride. But their behavior betrays their motives once again. You say, how so? Well, first of all, let's be clear. It's not wrong to host important events and meals with family and friends and dear loved ones. It's not wrong to do that. That isn't what Jesus is addressing here. What he's addressing here is that these men who are at this gathering never socially extend themselves beyond those from whom they receive the same or better treatment. Their social involvement, their social circles, 
the people they reach out to are people who can reciprocate what they give or even better, and they never extend themselves to anyone who gives nothing, who can't even return the, the most basic thing. Jesus is addressing these men and this habit they have of having social circles that never include those whose lives are needy or troubled. Their guest lists never include those whose social class does nothing for their reputation, does nothing to splash onto them something that makes them look good. They're never around those people. You go to a dinner of the proud and the invitees are people who will cost them nothing of any real challenge to their character. They don't get involved with people who are going to cost them real sacrifice unless they can get something in return. Jesus even includes here, beyond friends and brothers and relatives, neighbors such as are rich. That's literally the idea here. So you invite people you know have money. Why? Because you not only want their money, but you want to appear successful like they are. You're hobnobbing, partial. So Jesus isn't saying that enjoying life with family and friends is wrong, not at all. He himself was at the home of Lazarus and Martha and Mary down in Bethany, often having meals, and they were close, and those relationships were deep and dynamic. He was with Peter in Capernaum at his home. This was common, wonderful grace given by God. He's not heaping some false guilt upon the very normal, God-blessed relational joys of family and friends. The issue he's raising here is that of building a life that intersects exclusively with loved ones and dear ones who only give you back what you give. They can't give anything else. You never have people in your crowd that can offer something, that can offer nothing, rather, when you have to give it all and, and you get no reciprocation. And here's why Jesus is raising this. Because while it's not wrong to enjoy those events, there's a dangerous temptation over time if that's your exclusive social outreach, if that's your exclusive personal outreach to people. If you make it only about those who can give you back what you give, then the, there is this temptation in it to become comfortable with reciprocal love and never sacrificial love. Only reciprocal love and never sacrificial love. Reciprocal love is a great thing. And, and at its zenith, it's wonderful when two people are are expressing that toward one another. But that isn't the only kind of love you'll ever have demanded of you, and it isn't really the highest form of love demanded. The highest form is when you don't get anything back. And the Pharisees built a relational life that fed their ego and only involved reciprocal love. They're not going to invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind to their gatherings because it does nothing for their reputation to be seen with broken down people, with struggling lives. These guys always saddled up to those who can elevate their social status, as I said. So at least we could stop here for a moment and just begin to draw out the initial implication here. In your life, is there a kind of pride that that gravitates toward exclusively a reciprocal dynamic in your social interactions with people and with ministry, even with other believers rather than just family members who maybe don't know the Lord, is it that you've built a lifestyle habit of reciprocal love only and you have come to the place where you avoid relationships that cost you something and you get nothing back? 
That would be pride. Sometimes people hang around with intelligent family and friends because it feeds their desire to appear smarter than others. They don't hang around with people that need to be brought along, someone that they'd have to reach down to, someone they'd have to reach out to, and it might cost them some reputation, some involvement, some time. They don't want to do that. Or you hang around with wealthy family and friends because it feeds not only your lust for the wealth itself, but your desire, as I said, to appear successful according to the world's definition. You like hanging around with those people because you want to be known as as owning the same type of home or living in the same kind of neighborhood. The cars that you drive, the vacations you take, the size of your bank account, the business savvy you have, the schools you attend, the awards you've earned, that's the crowd you spend time with and anybody outside of that crowd Since they can't splash on you any benefit, you don't reach to them. You're not interested when God brings them to your doorstep. Or how about the fitness and beauty-obsessed family and friends who feed your desire to appear physically superior? We're we're more health-conscious. We're more beautiful. We're stronger. Or the popular and widely known family and friends who feed your desire to appear wanted and attractive and the total package. You only spend time with those kind of people. And when God brings someone in your life who, who can't give back anything, there's no benefit other than to their good, what are you like when God puts those kind of people in your path? When it will cost you your creature comforts, knowing that you'll receive no return of the same kind. F.B. Meyer made a comment about giftedness and how we assess it. He said, I used to think that God's gifts were on shelves one above another, and the taller we grow, the easier we can reach them. Now I find that God's gifts are on shelves one beneath another, and the lower we stoop, the more we find. That's right. And some people live their Christian life always trying to gather themselves up and leave the needs behind them in the dust because that does nothing for them. They get nothing for it. It's just all sacrifice, no reciprocity. But notice the fruit of the love that Jesus is challenging them with. Verse 13, when you give a reception, a feast, invite the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind. <laughs> That's, you can, you can, almost imagine now in this dinner that, that everything is starting to get very nervous. First of all, he's already said to the crowd, you're choosing the wrong seats and you don't even know what the host wants to do here. You've just picked it for yourself. Don't do that. And then he turns to the host. Now everybody's listening and he says this kind of thing to the host. Why are you inviting all these people? They, they can reciprocate that and in it there's a temptation then to only love that. It costs you nothing, Mr. Host. Why? Because if you invited the poor and the crippled and the lame and the blind, these are people without resources. And I know what you're thinking. Hey, they're going to scarf up my food and no means to offer the same in return. They're going to eat up my grocery bill. They're going to eat up my time counseling them. They're going to drain a good amount of my energy and challenge perhaps my knowledge of Scripture in ways that are going to expose that I need some work. And I don't want that. I just avoid that. It's, I don't want that to cost me. I want to hang around with the people that put no demands on me, cost me very little, feed my ego. We scratch each other's backs. Everything is the mutual admiration society. 
How about selfish and immature people? People that they don't they 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 lack the sort of social dynamic that goes on in in and among your family and friends. They're just awkward and how do you respond in your heart to that? They lack the common courtesies that we love to hear in return for all that we've done for people. People that we we might say are a, a thankless ministry because everything you do for that circle, everything you do for that person, there's no thank you coming back your way. Listen, what goes on in your heart when that happens? Jesus is pointing out to these Pharisees, the reason you miss the Messiah is because you don't understand God's love. You don't understand sacrificial love. And you could tell by who you, the host, invited to this meal. It's all about the kinds of friends that make you look good, give you status, feed you compliments, feed your ego. And when they want to invite you, you know you're going to get the same things in return. That'll be your payment. God owes you nothing. That's the point. What about people who are going to cost you temporal enjoyments? They have no means to give back to you in this life what you invested. Spiritual resources that you pour out, and they, they just can never ultimately give that stuff back. You have to think about some other place for the joy of those, those fruits. Do you avoid relationships? And we might even add, of obvious gospel opportunity. Do you avoid relationships of obvious gospel opportunity because it could require time and effort you just won't get back? That's Jesus' point. Look at your, look at your life and what you're willing to give. Does it reflect that you only spend relational equity on those who give you the same or better in return? I'm not talking about time with family. That's a great thing. I'm not talking about time with the friends and loved ones who have like-mindedness and like spiritual faith. Those are great things in the common grace of God. But in all of those relationships, there is embedded a temptation to avoid other dynamics where the gospel could reach or spiritual growth could go, but you avoid it because you're proud. You've let pride seep in. You're self-elevated. You condescend to others. Jesus could see that these religious leaders sitting right there in front of him were givers with ultimate, with, with ulterior motives, rather. They were, they were appearing hospitable and appearing caring and genuinely righteous, but it was only to those from whom they would get the same thing in return. What pretense. But genuine Christ-like love is never selective based upon res, you know, reciprocation. It's never based upon getting something back in return. The very definition of love that Jesus grounded in his own work demonstrates that very thing. The culture at the time that Jesus spoke these words at that dinner had really a similar definition of love that that we sort of have. We have one word for it. The Greeks had several words, but essentially we understand all of them. We understand the strong emotional bond of a relationship forged over time, which in the New Testament is called brotherly love, a relationship forged in the fires of life together. We understand that. They understood that. It was a committed friendship love. They understood romantic love in the dynamics of marriage that God intended in that one flesh relationship. They understood family love, blood relation love. But when it came to a term like agape, that Jesus often used to command us to love, Jesus put an entirely new depth to that term. Agape simply 
benevolence. Love that expresses itself in doing good to someone without a motive for getting anything in return. But it was somewhat emotionally attached to a degree. That's why it wasn't seen as the strongest kind of love necessarily. Jesus took that word and he applied it to the work he did on behalf of sinners. God demonstrates his own love toward us, Romans 5.8, in that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Now, just, just think about your state and my state before you came to Christ. You could not solve your problem. We could not go to God and, and make a case. We could not even turn to God. Our will would not do it. Our will is bent in the direction of our own self and our own worship of ourselves. And any time the truth is brought to bear, we rail against it by nature, by, by our very will being against God. We're bent in that direction. So we can't solve our own problem. We can give nothing back to God. No praise would come to Him if He doesn't do something. If He doesn't reach out to us, we spurn Him, we shake our fist at Him, we go all the way to our destruction and are in eternity Christless. That's who we are. And let's just admit that that's who we are. So if God's going to demonstrate His love toward us, it cannot be reciprocal at first, at all. It's one-sided, it's initiated by Him, or it doesn't come. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so on that basis, there's a new depth to the idea of benevolent love. Love doesn't just socialize with people who return great love to you, love actually gives to those who cannot return it to you. It's even more than that. Love actually reaches out to enemies. Enemies who not only don't have anything to give to you, but won't. How is the gospel going to come to anyone if we don't reach out to enemies of the gospel? The spiritual pretense here in the room was so thick and that's why Jesus graciously points it out. This is a test of humble love, and this is the proof of Greater love has no man, there's no greater expression of love than laying down your life. You say, ah, but Jesus said laying down your life for a friend. Remember what he said after that? If you obey my commandments, then I'll call you a friend. Look, you need to sacrifice it all for me. Then you're my true disciple and my friend. And how did he love us when we were not friends? And we were enemies. It was one-sided. It's all one way. And that's how he wants them to love. And so he's pointing out that their pride has blinded them. It is all self-love. You want to be like God? Love when you don't get anything back. Sure, enjoy the love that you do get back from those that love you the same way you love them. That's a wonderful thing. That's a great thing. But embedded in that kind of relationship, and only those kind of relationships, is this dangerous temptation to love that and avoid any other kind of love where it costs you something. But you want to be like God? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 44 and 45, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who's in heaven, for he causes the sun to shine on the evil and the good, and he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. You want to be like God? Reach out when, it, when it's clear you're not going to get anything back. 
Jesus makes it an issue of whether or not you're in the kingdom. You say, he does? Yeah, look at verse 14. You're going to be blessed since they do not have the means to repay you. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There it is. This is an issue of whether or not you're in the kingdom. If you manifest the kind of pride that just stubbornly goes along only reaching out to people who can give you your ego and give you your importance and give you your significance, we're going to question whether you actually are a kingdom citizen because you don't act like Christ. And if you've never known Christ by faith, never trusted His work on the cross, but you're attached to a church like GIBC, it's going to become pretty apparent that there's only in you a reciprocal idea. You give in conditions and you want to get something back, pretty soon you're going to be unsatisfied because somebody here is going to offend you and you're on your way. You're gone. Happens all the time. What's happening there? Your pride is blinding you. You're not listening to the Lord Jesus. We must crush this kind of pride. You say, well, I'm already in Christ. I, I, I'm not lost. I'm in the kingdom. That's right. That's why we ought not to be like those who are outside the kingdom. We shouldn't be acting like that, and yet we do. We're selective with Scripture. We sometimes don't like the humility of someone else's life because it exposes our pride. We argue with the truth and set our own trap. We fawn over the praises of men, and we give with ulterior motives. And I'll even add a sixth here, a sixth manifestation of pride. Pride ignores the eternal implications. It ignores the eternal implications. Jesus said at the end of verse 14, you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. There is a resurrection, and you will be given all the glory that, that comes from having been used of God as a faithful disciple of His to see spiritual fruit. All that will redound to Christ's glory and is your reward in heaven. Is that what you're looking to, or is it getting something from someone here in this life? In fact, someone in the crowd at the dinner was obviously uncomfortable and in his pride missed the whole point, and so he pops off in verse 15. This is just, this guy blows my mind. When one of those who were reclining at the table heard Jesus say this, he said, blessed is everyone who eat bread in the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know about you, but after what Jesus had just said in verse 14, you don't, you don't really speak. <laughs> and it's interesting, it's not the host. So this guy's speaking out of turn in the room. Jesus was addressing the host. Everyone was silent. And he's going to say this. You know, it's, he's like the guy who's uncomfortable with a sermon and everyone's under conviction and he just wants to soften the conflict because he's afraid of conflict. Well, well, you know, I mean, we're all going to heaven, you know. That's what this guy's like. Blessed are those who are going to eat in the kingdom. And it's laced with pride. It's a good thing we're not who you're talking about, Jesus. It's a good thing we don't fit that category. We're going to be in the kingdom. I'm going to be eating bread with you in the kingdom of God. I'm going to be blessed. So Jesus does what, what is gracious yet very, very forceful. He tells him a parable that actually says the opposite. Not only are you not going to be in the kingdom, but you were the first to be invited, and you have made an excuse because you don't actually want to be there. Notice what Jesus does. Verse 16, he said to him, a man was giving a big dinner, and he invited many. 
And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, come, everything is ready now. And by spiritual analogy, the, the point is the Messiah is here. Come, Israel. I've prepared your kingdom. Come, Israel. I've come to seek and to save that which was lost. Come, your, your meal is ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I bought a piece of land. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Like the land's going somewhere. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen. I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Right, you're not going to go to this big banquet because of your cows. Another one said, I've married a wife, and for that reason I can't come. Yeah, right. Why don't you just bring her? <laughs> and I love it. Jesus is just laying it on thick. A slave came back and reported this to his master, and the head of the household became angry. I mean, right now, that room is riveted and focused on what Jesus is saying. He became angry and said to his slave, you go out into the streets and the lanes of the city and you bring in here the poor and the crippled and blind and lame. Where have you heard that language before? This host didn't even invite people like that because in his pride, he's missing the Messiah. He's missing the fruit of the Messiah. He doesn't give where he doesn't get anything back. He doesn't give sacrificially. He's not like Christ. And so in the parable, Jesus uses the same language in the parable to say, this host said, you go out into the streets and lanes and you bring in those kind of people, the people that are humble, they know they're spiritually poor, they're spiritually crippled, they're blind, they're lame. They would never presume to be invited to such a thing. And the slave said, Master, what you've commanded has been done and still there's room. Hey, we went out and we got all those people and they came and they're sheepish but they're here, they're humble but they're here and there's still room. And so he said, you go out into the highways and along the hedges. These are places the Pharisees never went. You compelled them to come in so that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste of my dinner. That guy who spoke up was full of this pride that misses the gospel because it's all about his entitlement. Listen, love it. This message is so clear to Israel. You are so proud, you're missing it. The Sanhedrin's missing it. The leaders are missing it. The people are missing it. You are missing your Messiah. Why? Because you think you don't need him. You're making excuses. The excuses themselves aren't the issue. It's that the excuses are a pretense for hiding that they don't want to be there. I don't want to come to your dinner, Jesus, because to get into your dinner, I can't have the cheap seat. To get into your dinner, I, I can't have the honor I think I deserve. To get into your dinner, I have to just accept that you will place me where you want me. To get into your dinner, I have to go to the lowest place and, and wait for you to, to tell me when I'm in the kingdom. I have to sacrifice when it will cost me everything. I have to sacrifice in ways I'll get nothing back. I have to involve myself in people's lives and reach out like you have, and I don't want to do that. I'm not interested in that. You're going to tell me I'm not entitled to a seat? I don't want that kind of God. You're going to tell me I'm not entitled to reciprocal in engagement with people? Then I don't want that kind of God, the kind of life. You tell me that love is sacrificial to, to the point where I have to love my enemies? I don't want to do that. They're enemies to me. Why would, I, why would I love them? Why would I reach out to them? They hate me. I'm, I'm going to hate them. And Jesus says, well, you're not invited anymore. You're out. You're out. 
Listen, pride is so blinding, and Jesus is gracious to speak it to that room of people. They were so involved in pretense the whole night. Even one of the guys missed the total lesson and said, well, I'm glad that's not me. You can't be talking about me. No, I'm talking about you. You're part of Israel. You're part of this feast here tonight. You're proving that your heart isn't with me. You think you're something. You must understand that you're nothing. And when you believe you're nothing, then your wisdom begins. Then you can be redeemed because you're humbling yourself. And all who humble themselves will be lifted up. You'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. That's right. Not not some human reward for you to enjoy to make yourself look good in front of everyone else in heaven. No, it is the reward of the righteous. It is the reward of righteousness and Christ-likeness and fruitfulness at His hand. And all of that is given back to Him for His glory and honor in eternity. And, And for all eternity, all those stories will be told of how He redeemed the lame and the crippled, spiritually speaking. Redeemed them and made them useful. So the implications are clear even for us. We can't live that way. If you're saved, you're redeemed, then you've been loved as an enemy and redeemed into friendship. You've been purchased out of the slave market of sin and you've been brought into the household of Christ, into his family. If that's the case, you can't live like that. You can't hate righteousness. If the Spirit's in you, you love righteousness, so you can't hate the light. You can't run from the truth. If you start doing that, we're going to question, hey, there's pride in your life. Oh, you're selective with the Scriptures? There's pride in your life. You argue with the truth, and, and we notice that you live stubbornly, not listening to counsel, and that stubbornness leads you down to this trap that we warned you about, and you swing back around and say, boy, I should have listened to you. Yeah, you should have. If you do that two or three times, I'm... I'm going to begin to wonder whether you know Christ at all. That kind of pride needs to be dealt with. You're missing the Savior. You seek the praises of men. Listen, we all have that problem. We all love praise, hate criticism. We all would love to be exalted when we walk in the room. You must crush that. You must run from that. You must hate that tendency. If you don't hate that tendency, you're nurturing a life that is blinding you. We are nothing. We have no rights before God. Absolutely none. He he expects everything of us, his unworthy slaves. And he's the sweetest master you could ever serve. If you seek the praises of men, you need to crush it. If you give and your social circles and the time spent, it's only because you get something in return. If you love your spouse only to get something in return and when they don't reciprocate, you're not, you're not willing to, to love anyway. If you won't reach out to the downtrodden and the broken and the difficult, I'm not talking about let them off the hook, never speaking truth to them, but I'm talking about reaching out in love all the time, constantly. If you're not willing to do that, you live an exclusive life of giving to those who can give back to you, you're probably already succumbing to the temptation of Loving reciprocal love and not sacrificial love. You're not loving like Christ because Christ loved enemies. And pride ignores the eternal implications. Listen, we're looking to the reward there. You're not looking for it here. Why do you want to get something from somebody here? It's, it's all empty. Have you ever noticed that? When, when you're in these wonderful relationships that God allows and it's all reciprocal, it's still just here and it's never perfect and it doesn't last. It's sweet and precious but it's always a 
potential temptation, too, to love the wrong things. We even taint the best relationships where reciprocal love exists. We will even abuse those. That's, that's the measure of our pride. So we have to look to the resurrection, look to the reward with Christ, not here. Give yourself away here. Don't consume. Don't take. Give. Give yourself away. When Paul said to the Ephesians in the book of Acts, I did not withhold anything from you. I taught you the whole counsel of God. Night and day with tears, I prayed with you. I discipled you. I gave it all to you. I left nothing spared. And you remember what he said was the reason? It's never recorded that Jesus said it in the Gospels, but Paul records that it was said that Jesus said it is better to give than to receive. That's not a Christmas hallmark statement. That's a statement about giving where you receive nothing in return for the sake of some spiritual benefit. And we're going to find out in Luke's gospel, that's a test of true discipleship in the coming weeks. So next week, we're going to look at the practical ways you can crush this kind of pride and nurture humility. I'm just going to take a little excursus out of the text, and we're going to talk about some practical ways to nurture humility and crush pride. So if you, if you are interested in that kind of conviction, join us next week. <laughs> and if you're not, we'll pray for your sin-sick, shriveled-up soul. <laughs> <laughs> Let's pray.